Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I was given a suggestion for today's podcast. The subject of peace, P-E-A-C-E. A small subject it is not, and I'm not even going to get to put a fingerprint on the subject, let alone a scratch. For me, though there are many definitions, both secular and theological for the term, the concept of, quote, peace, and we will, I will, enumerate some of them for a frame of reference, it is not generally something, a state that I can intellectually, verbally define. So that's the first thing. I can't quite define my experience of it. And secondly, it's generally fleeting moments. And as I speak, you'll no doubt think of your own moments. Maybe a few of them are the same. I have to make a bit of a disclaimer here because I'm feeling a bit like a fraud in talking about peace and my experiences of peace because as a general matter, I'm a high-strung person for whom peace seems to come very rarely. Although I was happy to see, and as I will describe, there have been a few moments that have been significant. So maybe I'm not quite the fraud that I worry I am. So let me give you a couple of my moments. Sitting on my terrace late afternoon, and I'm watching the hummingbirds vie for the nectar in my feeder. One sits on a tendril branch. The negligible weight of the creature barely moves it. It whips its head, twittering. And it's kind of seems to be looking at me and checking, guarding the liquid sugar from all others, and then suddenly swoops to the feeder. Sip, back to check if I am making a move or another bird might be invading, with more confidence developing each time. The sips become longer, and then she, I think it's a she, I haven't seemed to see very many male hummingbirds, or I can't recognize them, she whips off. There's no place I'd rather be. I'm utterly content in a way that is more to my usual awareness. It's transcendent in a way. All of creation is represented in this transient moment and the totality of its potential I feel. This was the first peaceful moment that came to my mind. But right after making a note of it for this podcast, something happened which demonstrated the fragility of external peace and also of one's internal peace. And it's a very sad moment, but it bears completely on the discussion we're having about the elusive nature of peace. I was out on the terrace this past week and just making notes in my journal. And it was beautiful afternoon, late afternoon, almost getting toward dark. And suddenly I heard the sounds of a hummingbird, the kind of sound that you'd hear if they're chasing each other, but it was something more dramatic and more poignant. It sounded like the bird was screeching. I looked over to my neighbor's terrace and I couldn't see anything, but I could hear the screeching continue. So I started to try to remove the plants from the sort of division between my terrace and his. It would have been something for me to try to jump it. But I noticed that my neighbor was probably home, so I called out to him. Jeff is his name. And I called twice. Now all of this was happening so 
quickly. And he came running out and I said, I think there's a bird caught in the bushes there. He has some plants like I do on my terrace. And he looked down and he saw the bird caught up in some discarded branches. And I thought, and he thought that somehow or another it just got tangled up in it. But what really had happened, and I didn't even know that this could happen to a hummingbird, a spider had somehow latched onto its head and was quite frankly killing it. And by the time he picked up the branch and tried to disengage it from the branches, it was dead. I wrote about this in my blog, Gin from the Bronx, blog spot, and it, it really deeply affected me. I mean, death is all around us, but here in this lovely, peaceful, which was my whole point, peaceful spot, this National Geographic moment happened, the kind I try to avoid flipping the channel as a tiger goes after an impala on the field in Africa. And here it was, happening on my own terrace. Well, actually, on my neighbor's terrace. I think I would have even felt worse if it were my terrace. So here I am in the beginning talking about moments of peace, and one of the things that is true is that peace can be so easily disrupted. But here's another one at the beach. Nothing seems quite so infinite to me than to be sitting on a rock near Malibu, say, watching the waves undulate in with a loud swoosh and out with a quiet whoosh. It does elicit a primordial grain inside of me, a timelessness. When I turned 50, I arranged myself a party down by that water, and the beauty and presence of the waves seemed to me to join our joy of the evening. And then I had rooms at the then marginally affordable Malibu Beach Inn, where I communed with the sound of the waves for two nights, and also some of my friends did the same. To this day, it remains a highlight of my life. And in fact, whenever I think about the beach on Pacific Coast Highway, I even have that sense of peace just thinking about it. My very first experience of that vista was back in 1977 when I was just a visitor to California from New York. And a friend of mine was a fellow at USC and took me around to all the sites. And I really wanted to see the beach. And as we drove along the 10, which then opens out onto the Pacific Coast Highway through a tunnel, once we came through the tunnel and there it was, the ocean. I can't tell you what a profound delight, peaceful is just one of the many descriptions, but the sense of, <sighs> I can be safe here. Why? I don't know. It's no safer there than anywhere else, but that was the feeling. I suppose any water really does it. I'm just thinking right now, hadn't even made a note of it, of another bit of water I was sitting by probably around 2013 in England. I was actually in Oxford and I was at Worcester College. I had been very lucky to be able to get a couple of nights there through a friend. And I was sitting by this water and there were the ducks and the swans and the kids were practicing for a Shakespearean production they were going to be doing around the bend. And all I could think of is I feel enveloped with peace. 
whether I can describe the feeling or not. Here's another. I know I've mentioned my trip to Israel in 2018 and my couple of nights at the shore of the Galilee. Even more profound of a sense of whatever peace is was being in the boat crossing the lake. It was a modern boat. It was sort of made to look like an ancient boat, but it was a modern motorboat. It was one of the few times that there was any kind of rain. It was like a drizzle, or my grandmother used to call it a mizzle. And I was with the other pilgrims, or some of them, at the stern of the boat. Not quite a Titanic-like posed moment, but letting the mist caress my face and knowing that I was where God had been with his apostles. A sense of what? Being joined, unity, safety, though I knew from the Bible itself, of course, that a storm could suddenly arise. Another Israel-inspired moment, almost too quick to register a feeling, but there it was. In the recently repaired, restored edicule at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, under which there is the tomb of the resurrected Christ, I had mere minutes, perhaps less than that, to kneel where he had been laid. A fair amount of people, custodians, guards, or docents, whatever they were, rushing us. Only four of us fit into the space where the slab is. I was the first of my group of four, so I was against the inner wall, a piece of the original tomb visible. What to do in this haste to memorialize, to capture the place in my mind where Mary Magdalene was greeted by a man she thought was a gardener, but was Christ himself. I took my wood rosary and a medal of a crucifix that a friend had asked me to carry with me as his proxy, and I placed them with my hand on the upper slab. The docent barked, but I could be the last out as I had been the first in. Just enough timelessness. Here's another closer to home, and one that is right now essentially forbidden by the government, and that is to be inside the church, my church, my little church in West Hollywood, and to sit in the amber light that the sun casts through the stained glass windows, and sitting before the crucifix was actually used in a movie, Brother, Son, Sister Moon, that is patterned after the crucifix in the church of San Damiano, before which St. Francis was praying when he heard our Lord say, Francis, rebuild my church. I don't sit still easily, and in that space, I can actually sit for an hour before the tabernacle where the Eucharist is residing and be at a complete calm. Okay. Another little digression of a passing thought. Don't be mad, folks. What I have never experienced as peace is that which we have had at Mass and not doing now again because of COVID-19, the kiss of peace or the exchange of peace during the Mass. For me, someone, alas, not much fond of hugging or kissing under the normal circumstances, albeit all of us are part of the church on earth and the church militant, it has always been the kiss of anxiety for me. I've never felt comfortable doing it. 
and also it comes at a point in the Mass that seems to disrupt the attention on the worship of God. So I haven't been that unhappy that that's missing from our outdoor Masses at this point. It always seemed forced to me. Okay, I'm off the soapbox. So having said that I don't generally feel like a peaceful person, I'm realizing that I felt more peace in more moments than I've ever given credit for. But still, exactly what is it? So to the definitions we shall go. If one is speaking in purely secular, perhaps even military terms, peace is a pragmatic state, the absence of conflict, of warfare, a state of truce, what Neville Chamberlain proclaimed because he foolishly trusted Hitler to take just a little in conquest. Peace in our time. You leave us alone, we leave you alone. As you know, Hitler didn't leave anyone alone. Coexistence is a form of peace that generally doesn't last. You're always looking over your shoulder. You can't really ever breathe a sigh of relief. I suppose, though, in that secular realm, this is the, quote, peace most of us have lived since we came upon the earth. I was born right after World War II and the Korean War, and through much of my young childhood was aware of the potential of nuclear war and the concept of mutual assured destruction Remember that people of that generation, and I was among them, would do these air raid drills where they would have us either go under our desks, as if that would have made any difference, or had us go into the hallway and put our heads towards the wooden lockers and our hands over our heads, as if that would have made any difference. I'm reminded of the song by Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire. Pretty much everything he sings about in that song, right up to through the Vietnam War, is what I and my generation have lived. In this world of warfare, greater or lesser, we really can't depend on the external to provide peace, except in those passing moments, the ones I described, the ones that you remember you've experienced that fit some of the other potential definitions of peace as calm or silence or serenity like a day at some spa or in a forest or listening to peaceful sounds on an electronic device. Even in our dreams there may be little peace, rest, if our dreams are disturbed by the anxieties of our daily life. Can there be any real sustained peace here on earth? Philosophy has explored it, and some people have said they found it in those philosophies. And for some, perhaps, even atheistic existentialism does the trick. When I was in high school, I read a little of Albert Camus, particularly a book called The Plague. The book is something I struggled through in French, with a little help from English dictionaries, and with my fellows translated the French, which was la peste, into the pest. Here is this doctor, Rieu, who believes in nothing after this life into which a poor human being is thrown without support of any kind. But he, like Sartre, Camus was like Sartre, I always think of Camus as a bit more optimistic than Sartre, 
perhaps the most well-known existentialist. Nonetheless, he fights the plague that is killing people in the city of Oran in northern Africa. As an aside, it just happens that Oran is where my father, or one of the places that my father was stationed during World War II. He actually was in Oran and in Casablanca, none of which looked like anything in our fiction. I suppose the thing one can say about Dr. Rieu in trying to heal the plague victims is that he believes in nothing except to fight, to rebel against the nothingness of existence, the absurdity of an existence in which there is no meaning except the meaning which we provide in our rebellion. Is there any peace in the experience of Dr. Rieu? The only thing he seems to possess is the fight to be human despite the insanity of life, a moment-to-moment -moment thing. He's like Sisyphus, pushing the boulder up the hill that will roll back over him. But the victory is not giving up. The cause of itself is sufficient. The cause is both the goal and the reason to act. That doesn't work for some of us if there is no beyond an ultimate good. And in fact, in the book, in The Plague, there is another character, there are several other characters, but one of the characters is a priest named Father Panalu, who gives a Christian bent to the proceedings, but in a sense, in the existentialist world, that is disregarded as not meaningful or sufficient. Dr. Rieu may have had some self-satisfaction in knowing that he's fighting the fight despite the absolute absurdity of bothering to fight, but I don't know that in the story of the plague he ever experiences any kind of actual peace. If the boulder keeps falling down on me and I believe in my heart of hearts that there is nothing that's ever going to change that, then I can safely say that I would give up. In my wandering thinking about how different people cope, different groups cope, another that actually I'm attracted to is Buddhism, a philosophy, a lifelong approach to enlightenment, like the Buddha himself, who is not a god, but a man who through a variety of practices is able to transcend suffering, which largely is caused by ourselves. In considering the concept of peace and the feeling of peace, I think one of the reasons that I'm attracted to Buddhism is that when I have been to Buddhist temples, and I haven't been to many, but several. It is the only other place outside of the Judeo-Christian locations that I have personally had one of those moments of peace that I've been talking about in earlier parts of this podcast. I'm remembering a recent one a few years ago. I went on a visit with a friend to the Shilai Temple in Hacienda Heights, the place focuses on a humanistic Buddhism, the making of what they call a pure land on earth. Goodness is to be cultivated. The focus in this part of Buddhism is more on the living than on the dead. But the ultimate work is to get rid of the attachments that cause suffering using the Eightfold Path. Much is done via meditation, which I like. That's what I think I'm attracted to because I have, albeit in passing, experienced peace through prayer. It's another reason that I think 
I was attracted early to Thomas Merton, who had also a sense that Buddhism had something to teach Christianity about its prayer life. But again, it doesn't quite work for me or for other Catholic Christians because, well, God, the transcendent God, is not part of it. Although in its trappings, in its ritual, it sure feels like it is. I certainly felt peace walking around the monastery of, of the Buddhists and the grounds of the place with its, at that time it was New Year and so, Chinese New Year, and it was just so bright and pretty and life-affirming. So there was even a picture, I believe, of the head of that monastery with, I think it was John Paul II. It was just about perfect. The bells, the breeze, the sunshine, the reverence, the sense of otherness, but for one thing, and that is perhaps because I was raised in it, it's familiar, but more because it misses the person of Christ. It's not something that's present there. To, to peace, it seems, again, I'm coming from the tradition of Catholicism, seems to me that peace goes back to him. He's the crux, the living bridge between man and God. One of the words I found related to peace is the Hebrew word shalom, which would also have several meanings within itself, among which are reconciliation, wholeness, and completeness. Reconciliation is an interesting one because from a Christian perspective, that's what Jesus Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection, the reconciliation of God and men. Several times Jesus talks of peace. Here are a few. One is from John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked, where the disciples were for fear, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. So, these apostles, these disciples, at that moment when Jesus appeared to them with the words of peace, the first thing he says, they are in an external sense of disruption. Everything is overturned as far as they are concerned. The last thing that they're feeling is calm or silence or repose or any of that. They are feeling anxious and fearful. And then he comes and says, peace. Here's another. John chapter 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Another. Colossians 3, I believe, 15. And let the peace of Christ control your hearts, the peace into which you were also called in one body. I wonder if I read this somewhere, but it occurs to me, at least in discussing this, that the concept of shalom, the completeness, the reconciliation, the wholeness, there's another term prosperity, if you will, and not the prosperity of the world, but the prosperity that Christ brings. Those apply, those words apply 
to the Christian thinking about peace. Says our Lord in chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 6 to 7, Have no anxiety at all, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests to God. Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. My thought as I read these is, Lord, your sayings are hard because what I have to do in order to experience true peace in this world, which does not itself provide peace, and the sense of peace that I experience in those moments only really comes from you is to let go of my control, my attempt to control, and to perhaps even force these moments of peace, or to grasp at these moments of peace through my hand as opposed through God's. Existence is uncertain, and I fall into the trap, as most of us do, I guess, of trying to command as if I am a God, certainty out of this world that never can provide it. One of my favorite books for prayer has been, although of late I haven't been spending much time with it, is a book called The Imitation of Christ, uh, purportedly by a priest or monastic named Thomas Akempis. Over the years, some priests have rejected it a priest or two that I have spoken to over my lifetime, that it is too harsh in terms of expectations of the Christian. That, and this is my interpretation of what they said, that it's a bit old hat. But you know what? Whenever I've picked it up and read some of its sections, that peace that I talk about, those moments of passing peace, I think I've had them while reading some of the segments of this prayer book because it points to an unerring truth that I can feel in the absolute depths of my soul. It zips by that feeling, but it's there. And it's only time, these moments that I feel it, that I'm sure of it, I'll forget. And I'll go back to my usual efforts at control. And that, of course, is going to be a lifelong effort to see the truth. You might say, well, that's your truth. Perhaps so, or perhaps it is the truth. Anyway, in a section of the book called On Inward Consolation at chapter 25, I'm going to read a lengthy section because it's a dialogue between Christ and the disciple, and it's called On Lasting Peace and True Progress. Christ, I have said, Peace I leave with you, my own peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. All men want peace, but all do not seek those things that bring true peace. My peace is with the humble and gentle of heart and depends on great patience. If you listen to me and follow my words, you shall find true peace. The disciple, what must I do, Lord? Keep guard over your whole life, your actions and words. Direct all your efforts to the single purpose of pleasing me. Seek and desire myself alone. 
Never make rash judgments on the behavior of others, and do not interfere when your opinion is not sought. If you do as I say, you will seldom be troubled in mind. But do not imagine that you can avoid anxiety in this life, or that you may never experience sorrow of heart or pain of body, for true peace is only to be found in the state of eternal rest. So do not think that you have found true peace when you happen to experience no trouble, and do not think that all is well when no one opposes you. Nor should you imagine that everything is perfect when everything happens in accordance with your wishes. Do not hold an exaggerated opinion of yourself, or believe that you are a favorite of God when you enjoy the grace of great devotion and sweetness. For it is not by these things that the true lover of holiness is known, or is a man's spiritual progress dependent on such things. The disciple, Lord, on what then does it depend? On complete surrender of your heart to the will of God, not seeking to have your own way, either in great matters or small, in time or in eternity. If you will make this surrender, you will thank God with equal gladness, both in good times and in bad, and will accept everything as from his hand with an untroubled mind. Be courageous and of such unshakable faith that when spiritual comfort is withdrawn, you may prepare your heart for even greater trials. Do not think it unjust that you should suffer so much, but confess that I am just in all my dealings and praise my holy name. In so doing, you will walk in the true and noble way of peace, and I will surely come to you again and give you great joy. Only think humbly of yourself, and I promise you as great peace as man may enjoy in this life. As I read that, an aside, somewhat jocular, I hope, which is that one of the requirements is that one not give one's opinion if it is not sought, which made me think, unfortunately, of Facebook and how all of us are giving our opinions unsought all the time and frequently uninformed. And I include myself in that because I get caught up in it as well. So maybe that's one thing. Less Facebook. I'm guessing that a lot of peace would be derived thereby in moments. But to become serious again, what... I seem to derive from all of this is that peace ultimately in this life which will never be perfect until the next life is a humble certainty of God literally to take his hand and to say I'm gonna stop fighting Lord I'm just going to let you have your way as much as I know this is true I know also I'm going to botch it. Probably as soon as I post this and go about the rest of my day, I will botch it. I will try to control again. I will lose any potentiality of a sense of peace because I will try to control the direction of my life with a rebelliousness, let's call it, that if I just let go of it, I probably would experience more of those moments and would be able to see clearly into completeness and reconciliation and wholeness and even prosperity, the prosperity of my soul. One of the other things I have to let go of, and I know how hard this is, is the recognition that I cannot understand God's peace. That's what it says. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. 
I can't understand it, but I still have to let it wash over me. The thing that's bringing tears to my eyes, actually, as I'm recording this, is that even though I'm having kind of an aha moment, as I speak, as I read these things, that somehow I still won't allow myself to abandon myself to his will to get the peace that I say I crave. I use the won't in a kind of a relativistic way because it doesn't feel like won't. It feels like can't. And yet it is arguably very simple. Just letting go. Just saying, all right, Lord. And keep saying that through every moment in which my sense of want to take control rears its ugly head. But I need a veritable truckload of grace and then the perspicacity to accept it. So my friend who suggested this subject matter for today's podcast, I hope that this has been of some use to you and to anyone else who's listening to it. I hope it's been a use to me who's recording it, trying to sort out the concept of peace as I wander through this difficult world, a particularly difficult world now, when the one thing I feel so rarely is peace. It's uh, one of the reasons I stay with this church because he's calling us into one body. And the closest I can come to one body is through my church, the Catholic Church, which as I always point out in these episodes, has the distinction of the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ present in the Eucharist. And without that, I'd be lost. Well, that ends another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Next week, I'm hoping we're going to have an interview with a, an ordinary Catholic named Barbara McNeish, who has a very great variety of experiences related to her Catholic faith. So stay tuned for another episode next week of Ordinary Old Catholic Me.